Okay, it is May 9th, at least it was when I started today, and so we are continuing with Daniel chapter 9, and we left off around verse 23. And so looking at, at verse 24, I think uh, when we left last week, we talked about watching for six things that God will accomplish uh, in regards to his people Israel. So let's, uh, let's look at verse 24. We'll unpack those six things and, uh, and continue on. Verse 24, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to, number one, finish their rebellion, number two, to put an end to their sin, number three, to atone for their guilt, number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness, number five, to confirm the prophetic vision, and number six, to anoint the most holy place. Now, if we look at those very carefully, there's two interesting groupings there. Points one, two, and three have to do with sin, right? Finishing the rebellion, putting an end to the sin, atoning for guilt. And then the last three, four, five, and six, have to do with the establishment of God's kingdom, bringing an everlasting righteousness, confirm the prophetic vision, and anoint the most holy place. So let's unpack those just a, just a little bit before we, uh, before we move on. Number one, God will bring an end to the rebellion of Israel. Uh, she will cease to be in sin. She will cease to be in rebellion against God. God will restore Israel to her land, and he will bless her. And we went, we've gone over that in our study of Revelation. God will be true to his covenants with uh, the children of Israel. All right, then the second point in terms of uh, sin God will put an end to Israel's sin. Christ, of course, bears the sin of the world on the cross, and he removes Israel's sin when he returns to earth and establishes his kingdom. Um, Dr. Hawking, interestingly enough, interprets this as a judgment upon Israel. If you remember, one-third of, of Israel will repent, and not suffer judgment, but two-thirds, though, will not repent, and they will go through the judgment. Uh, they, they will go through uh, the tribulation. And then thirdly, God will atone for Israel's guilt through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the, the punishment will have been paid in full, and God will send the Redeemer, the Messiah, uh, to offer reconciliation between Israel and its holy God. So those first three really are aimed at Israel as reminders of how the, their corporate sin will be dealt with. And then four, five, and six, again, talk about uh, the kingdom. God's going to bring an everlasting righteousness forever. And that really, I think, refers to the beginning of the millennial rule of Christ, where Jesus will sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And then God will confirm the prophetic vision, meaning uh, he will seal the words of the prophets. Until, and, and when we talk about sealing and unsealing words of prophets in, in theology, until prophecies come true, 
until they come true, they are considered unsealed. When prophecies come to pass and they are completed, they are considered sealed or confirmed. So that final revelation from God given to John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation seals all of the God prophecies of all time prevented, uh, pre presented by his servants. And so Revelation makes it clear the prophecies are done, they are sealed. And uh, here's, uh, here's the passage that confirms that for us. It's in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I'll read it just as a reminder. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in the book. So in other words, those prophecies are sealed, and there's a warning there, don't mess with the text, <clears throat> don't uh, editorialize, uh, don't interpret, just give my people the word. And then sixth, talking about the, the kingdom, God will anoint what is said here as the most holy place. Now, interpreters have, see, they see this from two different angles. First is they consider the anointing of the forever temple of Jerusalem as the uh, anointing the most holy place, or they interpret it as the anointing of Jesus Christ himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever and ever over the forever kingdom of God. I lean, and remember my rule of thumb in interpretation is always go to the literal first, and if the literal makes good sense and it adds up, stick with the literal. And so in this case, I, I lean towards the literal interpretation. Uh, remember at the time that Daniel, in, in terms of the most holy place uh, being the temple in, in Jerusalem, uh, remember when Daniel receives this prophecy, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar did that in 586 BC. But ultimately, as we've studied before, <laughs> there will be a new temple in the new Jerusalem during the millennial rule of Jesus Christ. And there will be sacrifices in the temple. Remember, we talked about that not as sin offerings, but as sacrificial praises to God. And so, I believe when it talks about anointing the most holy place that we're actually talking about the new temple and the new Jerusalem, that would be the third uh, temple uh, in Jerusalem that, that uh, appears at, at the uh, millennial uh, kingdom. So remember, and let's go back and do a historical footnote here so we don't forget, the temple in Jerusalem has been built and rebuilt twice up to this point in 2021. Remember, Solomon built the first temple uh, maybe in the mid to late 960s. If you want to round it up to 1000 BC, you can. And remember, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. The second temple actually has three eras to it, initiated uh, at first by Nehemiah, then the work by Herod, 
and then uh, the destruction by Rome in, in 70 AD. So the third temple is going to be built for Jesus Christ to rule from, and my interpretation of that is that will begin uh, at the 1,000 millennial rule of Christ. So verse 24 here really gives us the overview if you look at it in total, if you look at those six points totally, it gives us the God's plan, God's program for the nation of Israel as revealed to Daniel from 539 BC when he writes this and receives it until the second coming of Christ. And again, that's why uh, this part of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah, this part of Daniel uh, chapters 8, 10, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are written in, written in Hebrew because they're aimed at the Jewish people. They're aimed at Israel to let them know what's going to happen from about 539 until Jesus comes back and sets foot back on the earth uh, at the second coming. All right. So uh, that's uh, verse 24. Now we're going to tackle three verses, which may take some time to go through. So buckle your seat belts, and here we go. This is uh, Daniel 9, 25 to 27. Before we get in uh, really deep into the timelines of Daniel 9, let's clarify a few things about the temple in, in Jerusalem, because the timelines involve not only the temple, but the rebuilding of Jerusalem which includes the walls, trenches, sometimes referred to as moats. So to review something we, we just went over, but I think it's important to make sure we've, we've got it in our minds, or at least my mind as we go through. Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, again in the mid to late 900s BC. If you want to call it a thousand, that's okay, but you know, really around the mid to late 900s. The exact date is, is disputed. You're going to see various commentators give you dates from for the first temple as being completed from 949 uh, to 950 something to 961 BC. It's somewhere in that range in the mid uh, mid 900s uh, BC. Uh, Lee just text me. I don't know what she said. Hang on a second. Oh, she lost the link. Okay. All right. Uh, so Solomon uh, builds the first temple somewhere in the mid-900s uh, BC. The first temple was destroyed, as we've studied, remember, around 586 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. All right. Now, the second temple really had several phases of construction. The first decrees come out around 538 BC, allowing it to rebuild. The second temple was completing around 515, 516 BC. Now, many, many, many years later, many centuries later, Herod, if you remember, began a temple renovation of his own around 19 or 20 AD. It was not the rebuilding of the second temple. It was a huge renovation project. If you remember, uh, Herod was a big builder. 
he he was an amazing uh, builder of of infrastructure. I know that's big right now and all of that, but not to politicize it back then. Literally, he built amazing roadways and 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 such. And so uh, Herod got permission from the Jewish people to renovate the temple and expand it. So the temple of Jesus's time was still the second temple uh, as renovated and expanded by Herod. And actually, the project lasted a long way beyond Herod's death and uh, Jesus's death and, and resurrection. The second temple renovation project actually was completed around 63 A.D., so when Jesus and his disciples were there at the second temple, it was still under renovation, under Herod's renovation. So, and, and, and what's ironic is that while it was completed around 63 AD, about seven years later, it would be destroyed by Rome and uh, totally annihilated. And that, that's kind of sad. Uh, how, so... We're in this period now where the third temple has yet to be uh, rebuilt. So with that in mind, it's important to understand that the first three decrees regarding the building of the, of the second temple came as the captives of Judah were being released from Babylon and allowed go to go back to Jerusalem. And if you remember from our studies earlier, that happened in, in three waves. It didn't happen all at one time. There were a, a period of about three waves of Judeans that had been held captive in Babylon, three waves of them that came back to Jerusalem. And if you remember, uh, Judah, of course, was the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel, nobody ever came back. Uh, it was only those Jews who were part of Judah, the southern kingdom, that uh, came back to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and ultimately rebuild the, the temple. The first three decrees by the Persian kings, beginning with Cyrus, dealt with rebuilding the temple and the finances associated with what it was going to take to do the rebuilding. That dealt with the temple. It was the fourth decree that dealt with the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to find out that that is very important. All right, so the key to the decrees to rebuild the city of Jerusalem includes rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the trenches, rebuilding the moats. In Nehemiah's humble pleas, remember he went before King Artaxerxes Logomanus, for whom, uh, remember, Nehemiah served as the cupbearer uh, for that king. Nehemiah came to him, and he pled with the king very respectfully to allow the, the Judean people to go back and rebuild the city. And this decree, as we're going to learn shortly, starts the prophetic clock that Gabriel begins in this particular message to Daniel. It's not the first decrees about rebuilding the temple. It's not when uh, Babylon was, was, was uh, defeated in, in 586 B.C. or, or 539 B.C. Um, this clicking, the, the, this ticking clock that was initiated by Gabriel starts 
when the decree is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, not just the temple. Now, that comes in to be very important because we're going to talk about timelines here in just a little bit. The timeline starts, the clock starts ticking when King Artaxerxes Logomanus issues the decree to allow Nehemiah to begin building, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. All right, so finally, in terms of preparation for the last part of Daniel 9 here, I'm going to use uh, a couple of translations as we zero in on verses 25 to 27, because it's important to capture the specifics of the rebuilding decree that starts that prophetic clock. And if, if you keep in mind, as we read and study, the decrees about rebuilding the second temple do not start the prophetic clock. It's the decree about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem that starts that 490-year clock that we're about to see. All right? So keep in mind, the clock starts with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and its cities and its walls and its trenches. All right. So we're going to need to look at all those translations to, to make sure we understand how that, uh, how that rolls out. So let's start with Daniel 9, 25 to 27. We're going to take it bit by bit to understand it as simply and as completely. I'm going to try to make it as simple and yet as comprehensive as I can. All right, verse 25. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven, sounds like an ACT test or a, you know, doesn't it? Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. I underline that in my Bible, that starts the clock, until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. Verse 26, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half of this time, three and a half, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all this terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally, finally poured out on him. All right, so let's break it down, this timeline, into some understandable chunks. Chunks is a theological term. All right, so Gabriel says the clock starts ticking upon the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that was issued, again, by Artaxerxes Logomanus. And I believe the best date probably offered for that is on March 5, 444 B.C., it's recorded in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Here it is. Early in the following spring in the month of Nisan, not the car, but, but the month, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, 
I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, meaning Nehemiah, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. So we learn from that whenever you're in doubt in front of royalty and you're worried, always say, long live the king or long live the queen. And that's always a good way to start things out. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, meaning Nehemiah, if it please the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the provinces west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. Nehemiah was a good planner. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. All right, so there had been three other decrees before King Adaxerxes Longamanus receives this request from Nehemiah. And those decrees were by King Cyrus and King Darius I and by King Artaxerxes Lagomanus himself. But the first three pertain to the rebuilding and financing of the temple only. But this fourth decree is the big one. This is what starts the prophetic end times clock ticking. It permits the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, including the walls. So with the, man, the command by King Artaxerxes Lagomanus to authorize the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the end times clock starts ticking on March 5, 4044 BC. And the clock stops with the arrival of the anointed one. Let's see how that happens. Verse uh, 25 again. Now listen, under, understand seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. So the coming of the anointed one is a second coming of Jesus Christ when he sets foot back on earth, and that will begin the millennial rule. And the time period is uh, going to end at that point and a new time period begin. But there's another in-between time period that's really important because that's where we are. So let's start breaking this down. The 77s, 70 times 7 equals 490. So there's 490 years. In some of your older translations, they're called weeks. But uh, it's uh, interpretatively, they're years. 
Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the ruler, the anointed one, comes. So seven sets of seven that you see there, that equals 49 years, right? Seven times seven equals 49. So we have 62 sets of seven mentioned as well. 62 times seven equals 434 years. So let's add up Gabriel's equation here. Seven times seven, 49 years, plus 62 times seven, 434 years, equals a grand total of 483 years. Mark that. That's an important total, 483 years. Now, what I'm going to do is go back to verse 25, and I'm going to add in these years, okay? So instead of just saying 70 <coughs> times 7, I'm going to actually give you the years. All right, so here we go. So I'm going to insert the years just to make it more understandable. Now listen and understand. 49 years plus 434 years equaling 483 years will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. As they say in late night television, but wait, there's more. There's one more time period that's mentioned here, isn't there? And it's in verse 27 of chapter 9, if you look at it. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. What's one set of seven? Seven years. Seven years. And what do you think the seven years is? Tribu tribulation. Exactly. So we now have seven years that we add to the previous 483 years. What does that equal? The 490-year total. So right. interpretively and literally, it all adds up. So from the time the clock, the clock starts ticking on March 5th of 444 BC, when King Adaxerxes Longamanus issues the command to begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and his walls. What happens during these time frames that Gabriel gives us? Uh, by the way, if you read Dr. Hawking's book, he has a different date of 445 BC. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to go with 444 a year off. Not a big deal. 444 plus, and then that's 400 and, and then move forward 490 years, right? Right. But then you all, as we'll find out, you have to also compensate for the Hebrew calendar. We'll do that in a moment. You also have to account for leap years and uh, a leap year being observed every 400 years. There are quite a few variations that go into that equation, but we'll talk about those in, in a couple of minutes. All right. So watch how the time frames of Daniel 9 here amazingly correspond to the rest of the history of the nation of Israel during the times of the Gentiles. What are the times of the Gentiles? Remember, we define that as 586 BC when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed 
and that's going to end with the second coming of Jesus Christ to fulfill God's covenants with Israel. Now listen and understand. Here we go again. 49 years plus 434 years equals 483 years, and that will pass from the time of the command that is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Now, as you see, these time frames are divided up into three sections, and we're going to find out why. First section, 49 years. Second section, 434 years. Third section, seven years. <clears throat> the first time frame of 49 years refers likely to the time it took to rebuild Jerusalem, including the walls and the trenches and moats. And you say, well, wait a minute, Mike, uh, didn't it take 52 days for Nehemiah to, to rebuild the wall. Yes, it did, but it took longer to rebuild the entire city. Okay. Uh, you have to remember that they're re that this is rebuilding the entire city of, uh, of Jerusalem, including fortifications and moats and trenches. Now, how do we know about these moats and trenches? I, I was fascinated by that. Well, let's compare a few versions, a few translations of, of verse 25. The NLT reads this way. Now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the uh, time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Now here we go. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. NIV reads, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. English Standard Version, it shall be built again with squares and a moat. And the Amplified Version reads, it will be built again with a city plaza and a moat. So what, Mike? Well, the point being that the, all these translations are talking about rebuilding the entire city, including the security fortifications, including the public plazas, including uh, the utilities, the infrastructure, the whole thing. That's going to take longer than 52 days. And so that first period of about 49 years, uh, I believe, means that time that it takes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, including the streets, the public squares, a plaza, a trench, a moat. Not so that engineering, years. are you think 52 years? No, no, Only 52, 52 days, remember. Oh, 52 days, okay. The Nehemiah took to build the wall, but it was only the wall. He wasn't, he wasn't the rebuilding wall. the entire right. city of Jerusalem. That took a lot longer. Okay, so that I believe is that first time period, the seven times seven, the seven sevens, which is 49 years. All right, so we're going to, my interpretation and I think the Dallas theological uh, professors uh, go along with this as well, probably refer to the rebuilding of the entire city. All right, now let's move on. The second time frame is what? 62 sevens. All right, what's 62 times seven? It's 434. So there's 434 years. So we need to add the second time frame of 434 years to the first time frame of 49 years, and we get 483 years. 
Now, are they years as we think of them? Well, <clears throat> we got to go back and look at the Hebrew calendar. We have to convert the Hebrew calendar to the Gregorian calendar. That's the calendar that we use, the Gregorian calendar. Our calendar is based on 365 days a year. The Hebrew calendar is based on 360 days a year. And then you also engage in this complex, which we won't do, but this complex calculation that also has to do with at the centennial years, they don't count leap years, but every 400 years does count a leap year. And when you cross the divide between BC and AD, you have to subtract a year because there's no year zero, right? Oh, yeah. Jesus wasn't right. born in the year zero. Well, actually, he wasn't even born in the year one, but right, it was a little bit after that. But uh, so we have to remember that there's a year that's lost there between B.C. and A.D. All right. So with all of those complexities, let me simplify it. When you cal calculate all of these variables, both the Hebrew calendar and the conversion for the Gregorian calendar, you wind up both calendar, both calendars equate 483 years to exactly 173, 880 days. So the days work out the same regardless which calendar you're looking at, whether it's the 365-day-a-year Gregorian calendar or the 360-day-a-year Hebrew calendar, and then also adding in those or subtracting the leap years, etc. Anyway, point being, However you look at it from the Hebrew angle or the Gregorian angle, both of them wind up with a total of 173,880 days. Why is that important? Here we go. If you begin in 444 BC, when Gabriel's literal clock starts ticking, and you go 173, 880 days forward in history, you wind up on the exact day that Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, or as we call it, Palm Sunday. Oh. Wow. Really? Right, so when they talk about the arrival wow. of the anointed one, Wow. It's the arrival of Jesus on the day, the exact day of the triumphal entry. And so. Not his I, birthday then. No. No. Wow. So here's one, one of the commentators. It might have been Dr. Hawking. I think it was Dr. Hawking. He says a lot of his Jewish non-believing friends challenge him and say, well, how could we have known that this was going to be the Messiah? And he goes back and he says, look back in Daniel 9. Add up the 173,880 days starting in 444 BC with the command by Artaxerxes Logomanus to rebuild the, the city of Jerusalem. 
add those days from that point on and you wind up with the triumphal entry, the arrival of the anointed one. And so his response is, God told you the Messiah was coming and he's going to enter the city on, on that particular day, on the, on, on the uh, day of the triumphal entry. All right, so does that, that we got that? 444 BC, the decree is made to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 173,880 uh, days later, Jesus, the anointed one, arrives in Jerusalem on the day of the triumphal entry, or we, what we wow. call Palm Sunday. All right, let me read the scripture again. It's really plain. Here it is. Verse 25. <clears throat> now listen, understand, and understand, says Gabriel. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. And if you add up those years, <coughs> uh, the 483 and, and you look at how many days that is, it's 173,880. Sure enough, the anointed one arrives in Jerusalem on the triumph day of the triumphal entry. All right. Ready to proceed? Here we go. Yes. <laughs> Let's look okay. at the next, the next event that comes after the triumphal entry. Two important points. Gabriel says after this period of 62 sevens, not at the end of the period of 62 sevens, right? He says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed. He doesn't say at the end of the 62 sevens. He says, after the period of the 62 sevens, not at the end, the anointed one will be killed. All right. So the first two time frames, remember, we have 483 years. Gabriel's clock that started ticking on March 5, 444 BC stops ticking on the day of the triumphal entry, 483 years or 173, 888 days later. 880 days later, the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, which would usher in the passion of Christ and his torture and death and resurrection, that arrival, at that arrival, Gabriel's clock stops ticking. There's a pause. We're still in that pause. The anointed one will be killed oh. after the triumphal entry, but not immediately after. The latter half of verse 26 describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and then the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. If you remember General Titus, who was just a horrible guy, uh, he, he besieged Jerusalem, killed a lot of, of Jews in 70 AD. All right. So let's go back and review. Add up the sevens. Time frame one, seven sevens, 49 years. 
Time frame two, 62 sevens, 483 years, uh, uh, 434 years. Seven plus 62 equals 69. 69 times seven equals 483. So there is a pause after the 69 sevens. There's a pause after the 483 years equaling that 173,880 days. There's a pause. There is no 70th week mentioned here or 70th seven mentioned here. That's because there's a pause after the 69th year or the 69th week, depending on the translation that you have. <clears throat> this pause in the ticking time clock is the after that Gabriel mentions. The time period after the triumphal entry, when the anointed one is cut off, or as we know it, Christ is crucified on the cross. The clock has stopped at the triumphal entry at year 69. And we are now in the church age, awaiting the starting of the prophetic clock again in year 70 or the 70th seven. It has not happened yet. And that will usher in the beginning of the tribulation period for seven years. This must happen, this pausing of the clock, because God is taking this time to initiate his program for Israel. He's setting Israel aside for the moment now so he can establish the church program. He has a program for Israel. He has a program for the church of Jesus Christ, for the those of us who are Gentiles. And that's what we're in right now is the church age. We're between the end of the 69th week or the 69th year before the 70th year begins in the end times. So we don't know how long that is. No, no, how long that is. Now, this is very interesting. Why does Gabriel say the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing? Well, the key to that, I think, one of the keys to unlock that is found in John 1, 10 through 11. He was in the world, <clears throat> and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own meaning, his own people, people the Jewish yeah. people, the nation of Israel. And then recall Jesus's words at the, as he talked to the chief priests and the elders at Jerusalem. <clears throat> he says, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, and, uh, it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's Jesus's warning to the, uh, to the Pharisees and the elders God is going to put you on the sideline while he gives the fruits, <clears throat> while he gives the blessing to the Gentiles who will be producing fruit like you're not. So he warned the leaders of Israel, 
you're not producing fruit. Therefore, another program is coming. You're going to sit on the sideline for a while while I develop this particular program with the Gentiles. And so <clears throat> that's where we now are in the God's kingdom timing. The pause after the triumphal entry, uh, ending the 69th week as Christ is rejected and crucified. But now we're in that time period of God's program for the church. It's unfolding still with Israel <clears throat> waiting for God to ultimately bring his covenants to pass. Now, God gives, um, we're almost done. Hang with me. Give me another five or six minutes. We'll finish this. Gabriel gave Daniel some troubling news at the end of verse 26, and I'm going to read it from the NIV because I think it best describes the prophecy. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Who are the people of the ruler who will come? Well, they're Gentiles, and in this case, they're the Romans. Remember, the Romans were the ones that destroyed the city of, 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 uh, of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD under Titus. Ro Romans destroyed the city and the sanctuary, and to this day, until Jesus returns to establish his millennial kingdom at the second coming, Israel will face terrible judgment for the rejection of her Messiah. <clears throat> and that's where this oh. comes from. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. Now let's read the final verse here of Daniel 9, which refers to the tribulation period. And to really make sense of verse 27, we need to, to lead in with verse 26, all right? And I'm going <clears> to <throat> switch to the message because I think it more clearly describes the destruction of the city and the temple in 70 AD by the people of the ruler who is to come. It doesn't mean the ruler has come then. It's the people of the ruler who is to come. In other words, the forefathers of the ruler who is to come will destroy the city. In other words, the Gentiles or the Romans. The ruler to come is also a Gentile. He's known as the Antichrist. All right, here we go. <clears throat> After the 62 sevens, the anointed leader will be killed, the end of him. The city and sanctuary will be laid in ruins by the army of the newly arriving leader. Hasn't arrived yet, but his forefathers, so to speak, are going to lay it to ruin. The end will come in a rush, like a flood. One of the problems with some of the translations is that it says a flood will come, or there will be a flood. Uh -huh. No, in the Greek, it it's desolation, it's destruction that will be like a flood. Why is that important? Because God told Noah that he would never destroy the world again by a flood. Right. right? So that apparent contradiction really is a misinterpretation of the Greek. It's destruction will come like 
a flood. Not it is a flood, but like a flood. It's it's a metaphor. <clears throat> All right, so here we go. After the 62 sevens, the anointed leader will be killed the end of him. The city, and that's Jesus, the city and sanctuary will be laid in ruins by the army of the newly arriving leader. That's future tense. The end will come in a rush like a flood. War will <clears throat> wage right up to the end, desolation, the order of the day. Verse 27 in the message. Then for one seven, what's one seven? Seven years. Then for one seven, he will forge many and strong alliances. But halfway through the seven, three and a half years, he will banish worship and prayers. At the place of worship, a desecrating obscenity will be set up and remain until finally the desecrator himself is decisively destroyed. This is the Antichrist. And remember what he did? Remember he came up uh, with all of these uh, peace treaties? He's going to be, um, he, he's going to appear to be a, a wonderful guy striking peace treaties across the world. That lasts for about 300, uh, three and a half years. And as he has gained the confidence and allegiance of world leaders, then he turns an immediate 180 and he shows his true colors along with the false prophet, all at the direction of the dragon, the devil, who is uh, pushing him to do this. Here's the English Standard Version translation, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, week here meaning years, seven years. And for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Remember when he did that, put a stop to it in the temple. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That means God's punishment <clears throat> falls upon the Antichrist. And, uh, and finally, let me, uh, let me end with the New Living Translation. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, seven years. But after half this time, three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Remember, he sets up his own image to be worshipped. Uh, in the temple. So there we go. At the end of Daniel, verse 27, we have what we've already studied in, in Revelation, and that is the last, uh, the, the seven years of tribulation and the last three and a half uh, when the Antichrist uh, really turns into who he really is and with the assistance of the false prophet takes over the world, uh, establishes the mark of the beast, and uh, eventually Jesus comes back and nukes him. That's another theological term. He, he nukes him. All right. So the clock will start ticking again at the tribulation period, but not yet. So we are in that time where the clock has paused between the 69th week, interpretively, and the 70th week of Daniel. But we could be. 
beginning the tribulation. Not until the start, the clock starts ticking and we see the Antichrist arise. I don't see anybody fitting that description yet. <clears throat> oh, I, I don't I think see. it's Putin. Pretty sure it's no. not Joe Biden. I don't think it's what's his name up in Canada, Brenda? Uh, Trudeau. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not Justin Trudeau. And no, it's not, not the Chinese. Biden, not Justin Trudeau. <laughs> no. So yeah. So the could thing it be, is could it be, but is it is it thought to be still European? Thought still to be European, yes. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. You think the Antichrist is going to be European? Yes. Mike? Yeah. Gentile. Yes. Mm -hmm. He will not come from the Middle East. He will come from outside the Middle East. You know, various ideas on where he's actually going to come from. But uh, yes, uh, he will come from Europe, not amongst the uh, Jewish or, or the Arab people. That's the first the time Middle I've East. ever heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. No, he he, he will be uh, That's an outsider, why there was a so lot of, of made of Gorbachev. Wasn't it Gorbachev? Yes, was right. Yeah, exactly. Birthmark. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, very, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, no, that's not what they're saying, Dave. They're saying. <laughs> no. All right. That was a lot. We survived Daniel chapter nine and the 77s and the 69 7s and the 7 7. Any? So the seven, the 70 mark is when the mark or when the beast comes or when the antichrist appears yeah it, it will uh the clock will start ticking during the tribulation uh period when uh jesus comes back and sets foot back on earth to bring an end to the tribulation that ushers in the new kingdom and we're not there, not there yet, obviously. So, all Pastor right. Mike, yes. Uh, Warren Wiersbe uh, said the same thing as you did um, in this, except he, he did use the figure 445 years. Uh, okay. But I did notice, I did notice in this chapter, I may have others, I hadn't really paid much attention. Uh, because you said that was a lot to unpack. Well, I thought it didn't feel like it was a lot to unpack. But I had this to look at. And Wearsby's is a little more condensed. Mm -hmm. So uh, then you have other little details. So, But it helps me understand lots of times what you're saying by reading what he's Good. saying. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's yeah. a great source. Very, very well. Yeah, wise. and he's. You and him are pretty much the same all so far as I've seen anything I've seen. So not that, I, not that I you have, have not, to be like Warren, Warren Wiersbe, but no, I, well, that's a compliment. I've actually not read his works on 
on this. Well, so. I would not know that because lots of times you're you're right up there with him. With if that without reading me, you're really right with me. <laughs> well, as long as we stay with the the scripture, and, yes. Uh, I that's think right. that's the most important thing. Oh, I okay. definitely agree. <laughs> Any other questions at all? That was a lot. My brain's tired. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, I was <laughs> thinking uh, John's not on, and he always says at this time, that is a whole lot. And if he's going to have to listen to this, will he be able to, <laughs> will he be able to listen to this somewhere? You know, I'm going to cut him a CD. I think he has a CD player. Okay. Because uh, uh, yeah. this is a lot for him. I was thinking about uh, him. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, my mouse just uh, quit. That's good. See, I don't try to uh, retain all that. Um, <laughs> I just get, I take an overview. <laughs> there you go. I'm not going to go teach it. I have a backup mouse. I have learned. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> We learned, out. haven't we, Brenda, during the radio show? Yes. yes. House goes I, I out, the show stops. I guess, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, thank you for journeying through this. I, I know it gets really heavy at times and uh, a little bit, you know, with the numbers, that's not real exciting, but it's really important that that we get that ingrained here so that we can match up yeah. daniel 9 to revelation and oh yeah see how scripture all connects you know and yeah and attach it to the history of the time as well you yeah know, which which all verifies it so uh, yeah. thank you for that daniel 10 coming up we're going to be looking at another we're going to have to climb in the time machine again there's going to be another time <laughs> shift and uh and another uh another vision as well so we'll um uh, <laughs> pick up with that next week did daniel uh, have all his visions in babylon yes yes and they were all uh during these well yeah they were during these times both uh you remember the the nebuchadnezzar visions and then right. we had these later visions about Israel, and those visions are received after the fall of Babylon and after Cyrus and Darius come in and bring the new Medo-Persian empire to replace the Babylonian empire. He's still in Babylon. Did he stay or did he ever go back? To Jerusalem. Never, uh, to my knowledge, went back to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, I've got some more information on that, but I'll share that when the oh, okay when we get there. Yeah, he did. He did not go back to Jerusalem. Remember, so, he's eighty. At the right. time that we're we're right now, he's probably around eighty-two, in in his early to mid eighties, probably. So he's so for that he time, never. An old he, he has no one um, driving these visions like Nebuchadnezzar calling him in to. No, these are yes. visions okay. God sends to him. Right. Okay. These, these are not visions he's interpreting for others. These are visions 
as, as we've been in um, uh, seven, eight, and nine, uh, these are visions that God brings to Daniel directly. In this case, in Daniel nine, it's it's, it's through Gabriel. Um, okay. Yeah. So, but remember in the earlier ones, remember because the focus of the last part of Daniel is on the Jewish people has nothing to do with the Gentiles really, other than showing the Jews how they're going to, what God's program is for them living under Gentile domination. Uh, the first part of the, the books uh, two through seven uh, dealt with the Gentiles, the Babylonians and Daniel is writing it in Aramaic, which is their language, so that they understand how they are relating to the Jewish people. It's just a fascinating way that that, that book is divided. And again, that's yeah. why the first half is in Aramaic, which is the la language of the Gentiles or the Babylonians at the time. The second half is written in Hebrew, specifically for the Jewish people. So there we go. All right. Um, well, thank you. Are you still there, Lee? I see Lee there. I am absolutely w here. <laughs> hey, happy Mother's Day, Lee, by the way. And, and to you, too, and Anne. And, uh, happy Mother's Day, Sandra. Yeah, it's been a perfect day. <laughs> I, I have to go make the salmon for the mother in our house. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, God, God made the salmon. I'm, I'm just broiling it. <laughs> I guess. Anyway, Lee, would, would you mind closing us in prayer today? No, I'd love to. Father, thank you very much for this perfect Mother's Day. I pray for all the mothers um, in service church and beyond. And Lord, we thank you for so many blessings and Mike's lessons, his faithfulness and every Sunday and teaching us. And Lord, I just pray for the week ahead. I pray for uh, uh, John and Lori and Mike and Ann and Sandra and Brenda and Janetta. And I pray for uh, peace of mind, uh, provision and protection all the days of their lives. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Amen.